Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I would encourage you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter 7, our focus text this morning will be verses 10 through 16, 10 through 16. Before we hear the reading and preaching of the word of God, let's go before him together again in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly father, we thank you, O Lord, for your very word. We thank you, O Lord, that it is not just words that come into our ears, but by your Spirit's power and work, it is your word that is active, living, and true, and that pierces our hearts. It gives us zeal and service to you that convicts us where we need to be convicted. As you mold us and shape us more and more in the image of Christ. Oh Lord, we do pray for your Spirit's work this morning through and by your word. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 10. Hear now the very word of God written for you and for me today. Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? And how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Thus far the reading of God's word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word to us. Indeed, let him who has ears to hear, hear this very word of God. Well, congregation of the Lord, it's so good and helpful to have the Word of God guide us to answer questions and shape our view of marriage, especially what is healthy and what is good in sexuality within the bounds of biblical marriage. And it's also good and helpful to have a faithful minister and elders in your life to unpack and apply God's truth to you so that you can grow and you can mature in your knowledge and your understanding of God's beautiful design and indeed flourish in how you put that truth into practice. The saints in Corinth experienced this with Paul, didn't they? They had questions about sexuality and marriage. 
that they needed help finding the answers to. Many respected and desired their pastor's counsel and guidance, and Paul gave it to them. He was happy to do so. If you recall, there were some in the Corinthian church who condemned sexual promiscuity, but went even further to teach that Christians should avoid marriage and even abstain from sexual relations within the bounds of marriage. And whereas they demanded that celibacy in marriage was best, Paul sought to lovingly but very clearly and definitively correct and give them God's ordained remedy and design. Paul really wanted to impress upon them and indeed impress upon us that God's gift of marriage is a great protection and a wonderful remedy against fornication and sexual immorality. And further, we've seen how Paul didn't impress this by just giving us a 30,000 view shotgun blast, right? A, a very general view of biblical principles for healthy marriages. Indeed, he does give us great and wonderful principles for healthy marriages. But rather, Paul walked right into the bedroom and in essence said, this is where we need to start. Let me tell you about God's design for intimacy between a husband and his own wife and a wife and her own husband. And what did Paul say that that design looks like? It looks like a husband and wife giving themselves freely to one another, serving one another in love as they share their bodies with each other. It looks like one not depriving the other of physical relations except for abstaining for a mutually agreed short period of time where they devote themselves to prayer and fasting, and then, and importantly, coming back together. And why is this coming back together so important? Well, Paul said, because our flesh is weak and the temptations are strong. Satan will try to take advantage of our lack of self-control. And yet the purity and the beauty of our marriages must be protected and maintained for the glory of Christ our Lord. And so as Paul briefly then shifted gears in the context of today's passage, to give a word to the unmarried and widows to impress the gift of celibacy and singleness to them, along with their need to guard their hearts and bodies. <clears throat> and indeed, if they needed to marry, if they could not, manage and keep self-control, they should do so. Why? So that they don't burn with passion. But Paul now returns back to married couples in our text this morning, addressing their vows along with how they should walk if they are in a few different relational scenarios. So let's consider Paul's words regarding believers keeping their marriage vows in verses 10 and 11. The believer, the unbeliever, and their children in verses 12 through 14. As well as what to do if the unbeliever leaves in verses 15 and 16. To see what Paul says here regarding marriage vows in verse 10. He says, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. Now, as Paul returns here to provide further help to believing couples, notice that he comes strong with a command. 
and also see how he qualifies what he is about to say, and he isn't merely saying that it's from himself. It's not from Paul, uh, based on his apostolic authority, but it is truly from the Lord. And that needed to impress their hearts, and needs to impress our hearts even more. He says a wife isn't to depart from her husband. She literally isn't to separate from her husband on a whim or at her pleasure with the intent of divorce. This had clearly been going on with some in the church. And thus there were questions as to how they should navigate. There were questions as to whether this was right or okay that had been raised. And therefore, Paul's counsel was firm, right? He starts with a command. He gives firm counsel that if any woman had been separated, either by a voluntary act of her own or by an act of her husband, she should continue unmarried and seek reconciliation with her husband. And see, that's exactly what he says in verse 11. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, beloved, Paul's counsel is clear in these verses. As husbands and wives are to maintain healthy intimacy in their marriage, here they are also to view marriage as what it truly is, what God has given and designed it to be, and that is a sacred covenant relationship. It's not a cheap, dispensable contract that can easily be walked away from, especially in light of small offenses or some kind of discomfort or some type of conflict. Married couples are to take their vows seriously. They are to keep their vows for better or for worse and remain in their relationship with each other. Now, some of you may be thinking as I say that, now, I understand the sacredness of marriage, Pastor, but doesn't Scripture also teach that there are some allowances for divorce and even give instruction about how lawful divorce can be carried out. Yes, that's true. And in fact, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 24.6, it summarizes biblical teaching very well when it says, quote, Although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, Yet nothing but, notice, adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage, wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretions in their own case. So notice here that the allowances are narrow. Whereas there, there are many in our world who would like to divorce because of anything. Because of the smallest thing. They would like to cut the ties. They would like to walk away. It not only tells, it tells you, it tells those who are watching or know them how they view such sacredness of marriage and vows before the Lord and others. But they treat it very lightly. But this isn't what the Lord says. The allowances are narrow. And remedy, notice, must be sincerely sought. That's important. Remedy must be sincerely sought. 
However, as Paul recognized that there were some wives and husbands in Corinth who were deserting and divorcing unbiblically, Paul needed to press the sacredness of marriage here. For in marriage, the husband and wife must not separate for any other cause than what Christ allows. Period. Christ sets the standard. Again, you've heard me say this time and again. You, you may think, boy, pastor, you're really hammering it in. You're right, I am. Because the Lord hammers it in. The marriage relationship is a glorious picture and is to be a glorious picture. Pointing to Christ's mysterious and wonderful and beautiful relationship with his church. That's why we have to consider it so serious. That's why it's so beautiful, because Christ gives it beauty. He takes it seriously. Consider the relationship that he has with his church. The unending, the undying, the sincere, the, the pure love of Jesus Christ that he would suffer and die for his people. To save them. Indeed, that he is the glorious bridegroom and we are that glorious bride. And we await, even as he is sanctifying us by his spirit, he is making us more and more like him. We await that glorious marriage supper of the Lamb. Yet to come. Christ sets the stage. Christ sets the rules. And by Christ's command, marriage is for life. And further, know that God hates divorce. We need to keep that in mind as well. Malachi teaches this as he rebukes God's people in Malachi 2, verses 13 through 16. You can turn with me there if you'd like. Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. There we read, And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, notice, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But he did not make them, did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? God, he seeks godly offspring. And notice, therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts, says the God of armies. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, that you do not Jesus also taught about marriage and divorce and remarriage in Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9. In verse 3, we read, The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, 
and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And notice verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Jesus doesn't mince words. Malachi didn't mince words. Very clear about how our Lord considers divorce. Beloved, if there aren't legitimate grounds for divorce, and those grounds either being adultery, which Christ has just pointed to here, or willful desertion, we'll see more of that from Scripture in a few moments. And an unbiblical divorce occurs. Remarriage isn't an option because in God's eyes, the marriage is still binding. We need to know that. We need to live according to that as his people. To remarry would be to enter into an adulterous relationship. And so the question arose. Again, Paul, another question. What about marriages where a believer is married to an unbeliever? They were curious about this too. They needed his guidance on this as well. Look at verse 12 back in 1 Corinthians 7. But to the rest, I not the Lord said, If any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Notice how Paul echoed God's command when he said, not I, but the Lord, in verse 10. And here he says, I, not the Lord. He spoke from his own apostolic authority. Jesus never explicitly addressed the issue that Paul addresses in this verse. But this isn't a problem for us, as all of Scripture is God-breathed. Paul spoke from his own apostolic authority as one sent by Christ. And he spoke about a scenario that had come up in the Corinthian church where two unbelieving pagans got married and through the proclamation of the gospel as the apostles went and made their journeys and proclaimed Christ to the people and in the ears of many, that through the proclamation of the gospel, and as God was building his church, one of the spouses was converted. And so then you had a believer married to an unbeliever. But the question arose. If one spouse was converted and the other not, should the marriage be dissolved? Would they be defiled if they lived with an unbeliever in marriage? What was Paul's answer? No. In fact, if the unbelieving wife was willing to live with the believing husband, they should stay married. And there's good reason for that, as we'll see in a minute. And as we see in verse 13, the opposite is also true. If the wife believed and the husband did it, and 
Why was this so? What is that important reason? Look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But now they are holy. Beloved, see Paul's primary focus in his answer to the question of why the believing spouse must stay was because of the influence of divine grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ in the home. Paul says the unbelieving spouse was sanctified or set apart or made holy by the believing spouse, and importantly, as were their children. And how could that be? What does this mean? First, it doesn't mean that the unbelieving spouse was saved by living in the same house as the believer. There is no such thing as salvation by association. Paul isn't saying that there is a change of nature in the unbelieving spouse, for salvation comes by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. And yet it does mean that because one parent is a believer in the Old Testament language, their status changed as the whole family is regarded as a covenant family. Paul is saying that the unbelieving spouse is set apart to be under the powerful influence of God's work, the powerful influence of Christ as their spouse lives a godly life and is pursuing holiness in their midst and before them. In other words, the believing spouse is to stay for the sake of the gospel, living out their life of service to Christ for the glory of God in their home. You know, sometimes we forget that, even those of us who aren't in this type of scenario of a believing and an unbelieving spouse and the reasons why they should stay, even if we're not considering that specifically, but otherwise, is the gospel on display in how you live in your home? I encourage you to think about that this morning. Because sometimes our thoughts, and oftentimes our thoughts, are outside of our home. Is our witness to those who are in public, friends, community members, those that we may come across on the streets in the grocery store, or out at the park, or at book tables, or open-air preaching, or track distribution. But what about your spouse and your children? That's where it begins. It's, it's essential and it's important. You need to be consistent in all areas of life, right? In your obedience to Christ. But is Christ on display in how you live and what you say in the home? <clears throat> Peter speaks to this exact scenario in 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. He says, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Beloved, we aren't the ones saving them. 
It's solely the work of Christ by His Spirit in their hearts that they belong to Him. And He draws them to Himself. But the Lord does use us as instruments of grace in the lives of others. We need to be mindful of that. Our lives, as Paul says in several places in the Scriptures, in in his ministry, what did he seek to do? He sought to persuade men. We too, as we hear this language about the one being one, the husband being one by the conduct of their wives, by the will and grace of God, he may use you in the life of your spouse for his glorious purposes for their salvation. But this also means that as the status, again, not the nature, of the covenant children in the home, they are the same as that of the parent. For the children aren't unclean like the children of the pagan world are. But no, Paul says, They are holy. They are set apart from the world. They are likewise under the influence of Christ and godly living on display before them. And according to Reformed theology, we've looked at this verse as part of the rationale for covenant baptism and baptizing children of believers. For as covenant children, they should receive the sign and seal of the covenant and they should be welcomed into the visible church. And yet, what should happen? The Corinthians also asked Paul. What should happen if the unbeliever leaves the marriage? Look at verse 15. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. My friends, we are called If the unbeliever is willing to stay, verse 12, stay with them. If they leave, Paul says, let them go. We are not to get into a nasty, all-out, drag-out ordeal. We are called to peace. Let them go. In that case, the Christian spouse isn't bound to stay married married, and is free to remarry, yet only in the Lord. See how verse 15 gives us the second ground for biblical divorce, that of willful desertion. Again, what is an important duty in our lives? Again, he comes back in verse 16 to press this home again. For how do you know, a wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, a husband, whether you will save your wife. We must live for Christ and seek to be faithful in being a good testimony of His grace to others around us, especially our spouses and our families. And it's not as if our conduct is somehow uh, locked in. And if we knew, oh, God is going to use me to save them, I know that ahead of time, then therefore I'm going to do everything that I should, the way I should, in order for that to happen. Now, the questions here are, live your life to the glory of God and in obedience to Christ. Praying that the Lord would 
be pleased to use you or whatever other means he may be pleased to use to bring such an unbelieving spouse to salvation or family member, etc. Hear the spouse. Matthew Henry said this. I think it's helpful. It is the plain duty of those in so near a relation to seek the salvation of those to whom they are related. Stay and labor heartily for the conversion of thy relative. Endeavor to save a soul. Who knows, but this may be the event. It is not impossible. Indeed, by the grace and work of the Spirit alone, it isn't. All praise be to God. Well, I'll leave you with a couple of things. Married couples, take home the clear call to be Christ-like in your marriage, in your home. For not only is this important, an important witness for your wife, and young people, again, don't think that these types of things don't apply to you too. You need to be thinking about, reading upon God's Word, meditating on this, knowing what should be true of you and how you think of marriage if the Lord would bless you with that in the future. But again, this is important regarding your spouse. It's also an important witness for your children. Not only in your gospel living, in their midst, but how you treat your husband or your wife in their midst. Your life is on display, should be on display, must be on display in these wonderful ways as a witness and a testimony to all who are in your home in the different relationships you have. But it's here and especially bear this in mind for your marriage. Don't separate for unbiblical reasons, but rather Show your enduring commitment, your joyful love, and Christ-like service to your spouse as you stay with them through thick and thin, as you seek to work things out with them. Again, we are called to a ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation and restoration is glorifying to God. So as you do these things, as you seek to work things out with them, as you highly value and take seriously the vows that you have taken to them before God and witnesses, really seek to be Christ-like to them. I know that's a challenge each and every day. I know there are things that get under our skin. We know that there are pet peeves that we have that irritate us that put us at odds with each other. But don't let those things rule the day. Squash. Mortify your flesh. Deal with these things. Resolve these things. Do not let bitterness or pride take the day. For Satan would love that. Again, Satan loves to destroy marriages. He targets them. He targets Christian marriages. He wants them dead and ineffective. And showing the opposite of what Christ designed them to be. But know also and see the wonderful work of grace and the gospel in your home. Be diligent in prayer. Be faithful and hearty in your witness. 
seriously consider how your life displays Christ, especially to your family at home, and, and pray daily for your unbelieving spouse, if that is true in your situation, and family members, your children. Pray for your covenant children. Don't neglect to pray for your children, to shepherd them, to guide them in the ways of the Lord, to teach them about godly marriage, to teach them about conflict resolution and peace within the marriage and how that is accomplished so that they can see that, so that they can mimic and imitate that to give glory to Christ one day. For just like you, beloved, they're faced and they hear other voices. They face and they hear other voices from this world that tell them how these things ought to happen. How life and conflict in marriage should result. But it is not according to God. See the Lord's design. See Christ's design here. And as you pray for your covenant children, praise the Lord that they aren't unclean but rather they're set apart and holy as covenant children and pray that, that God would be pleased to use even your speechless conduct and your life as a beautiful testimony of Christ to all. Paul's recalibrating things big time in the Corinthian church. God's Word recalibrates our thoughts and attentions, our understandings even here today, doesn't it? All glory be to Christ. Praise God for His Word. Let's pray together.